Hi, my name is Tegan Steelfisher. I'm a bartender in Northern California, and I write poetry. Yeah, and you, uh, like, I first come and came across your poetry, like, on Twitter through Brendan at, I think he's still a nice dry officer, but um, <laughs> that's, that's subject to change. Yeah, he changes it a lot. I like how you bring him up in almost every episode, too. I think it's funny to do that. So it, it's like a bit we can have on a bingo card how many times, you know, something we can check off every episode. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um, I found Brendan because I was searching for leftist poets earlier this year. And I just kept typing in like Marxist poetry or leftist poetry on Twitter. And somehow I ended up following him and I was looking for an editor for my chapbook that I was writing. And I tagged him in a post looking for that editor and he wrote me back saying that he didn't edit people's work and definitely not for money, but he would retweet if he could. Yeah, and like, so how did you get into poetry then? Um, I guess I've always been writing poetry from a young age, as a lot of people do, but possibly... Um, my first formal interaction with poetry was in high school. I dropped out of my chemistry class to take a creative writing class, um, where I kind of learned about form and all the things you do in high school creative writing class, but I don't think I ever started really interacting with other poets until the past maybe two years. Um, so my corpus is a little all over the place because I've just been trying to read whoever I can. Yeah, and you have a book coming out soon, too. Yeah, I have Apostolate coming out in October sometime, whenever I have enough money to finish it. <laughs> it's self-funded, so. Right, and, like, you know, I read a copy of it. It's, like, really influenced by, uh, like, liberation theology. So how, how did you come to liberation theology? Um, I grew up in a white evangelical protestant denomination so my interactions with theology started at a pretty early age um and i did a lot of ministry work in my younger years um some colonizing projects which i reference in my book and eventually i went to private evangelical school and studied theology there um where i decided to apostatize so I kind of went on the runaround with theology, but liberation theology was the last thing that I kind of interacted with from a confessional angle um, in my studies, and most specifically Dorothy Soul and a couple other people like Leonardo Boff and um, Gustavo Gutierrez, so James Cohn. Yeah, like, what do you see as, like, the appeal and importance of liberation theology maybe here in like the in like a US context. Um the way I mean from my own perspective, I think it's the grounds for a lot of specifically black liberation movements. Um you could even argue that Harriet Tubman was doing her own version of liberation theology or um yeah I think I think people in Protestant circles maybe have sort of taken 
liberation theology is a political uh, starting point um, out of their faith tradition against certain oppressive structures. But I think in Catholic circles, maybe just in the Americas generally, it's been more of a protest movement against the Catholic uh, clergy and a laity movement. So, I mean, it's important in the sense that it it gives sort of a framework for everyday people in faith communities to describe and denounce the the things that are harming them. Right, and how do you see, like, because several um, uh, <laughs> liberation theologians have been poets, so, like, how, how does that come together for you specifically, I guess? Um, I think, well, okay, I'll, I'll just go ahead and talk about Dorothy Soule because she was the first person that I was interacting with who was doing liberation theology, poetry, um, and prayer. So it's more like a poetry, prayer, praxis, um, as sort of her hermeneutic for engaging with things like the Vietnam War and reconciling with her own culpability as a Christian post-Holocaust, um, and yeah, I mean, I think that for a long time in my personal prayer life, I was engaging in a type of poetry. Um, a lot of my prayers were written and um, maybe talked about suffering quite a bit. Um, just generally, not necessarily specific suffering, like. I see in most liberation movements um, but I think for a lot of people having uh, language around a language that maybe it can't necessarily describe but can gesture towards the fact that things shouldn't be the way that they are um, is pretty important and has been important Important for people throughout Christian history. Um, even a lot of heretics were poets and monastics were poets. Um, so there's sort of a, a lineage within liberation theology and even protest movements in the medieval era against the established church um, to, to, to reckon with their location um, through, through story and metaphor and all these things. So yeah, and like maybe you could say a little more too about like poetry and prayer because I feel like a lot of poets now who maybe aren't actually that religious like to kind of obfuscate things through a kind of like using prayer and a certain kind of mysticism. So like I think like Dorothy and um, like Ernesto Cardinal have you know specific ways of actually using prayer in their poems, whereas sometimes it feels like in to poetry today it's kind of more of an ambiguous thing yeah yeah totally and I, I would even argue that um maybe a lot of what we do in the world is still theological um i talk sometimes about the myth of secularization which is only possible in a christianized world so <clears throat> i think maybe a lot of poetry is actually prayer whether or not someone identifies as religious in the sense that Prayer, prayer can be something as simple as um, 
I mean, in the mystical tradition, I guess it can be as simple as yearning for a world that is not yet. Um, and I think that comes up a lot for Dorothy specifically, but also Ernesto. <clears throat> um, I think, yeah, I think Dorothy, I have a lot of critiques of her, but I think that she maybe. Yeah, you think that Dorothy does what? Um, she just kind of talks about how we can reclaim sort of a mystical language um, post-enlightenment and maybe that some of the philosophy that came out of enlightenment thinkers was malnourished um, and, and capable of talking about suffering. And I mean, she references some systematic theologians that were pretty much on the Kantian train where they wanted to just discern God and have absolute reason and know what God was. And um, she tries to do away with that quite a bit and say that there is no absolute knowing that can be had of whatever God is, but um, that, you know, there's no barrier between the human person and Christ. And, and that kind of gets into her Christology a little bit because she basically sees Christ as like a suffering person who can't do anything um, without human action. So that's kind of where I see her turn to Marx a little bit more where she's trying to do almost like a Christian atheism um, and say that God has no other hands than ours. It's kind of a famous phrase of hers. So I don't know if I even answered your question. No, no, that's that's good. I think another good question here to, to ask would be like, so a lot of the times when contemporary poets turn to prayer, it's kind of like a way, it's kind of also a turn to inaction. But for Dorothy, especially uh, in Ernesto Bernal, like the turn to prayer, you know, as you were saying, there's a turn to like mysticism too that uh, kind of has leads to action in the world. Like, you know, as you were just saying, uh, God has no hands but ours. So like, how does like the mysticism and prayer kind of lead to, I guess, real world action for them? I mean, the mystical tradition has roots in, um, you know, denying private property and, um, cool. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, they're they're really rad, actually. Um, so, I think maybe to answer your question, the mystical tradition can and provide a space where contemplation and practices kind of go hand in hand, and you can't have one without the other. Um, at least for the mystics that are maybe trying to take responsibility for their own sort of internal anxieties um, so that they can be responsible to the world around them. I think of Francis Assisi and Claire Assisi a lot when I think of mystics who were really contemplative, quite prayerful, but um, ultimately were concerned with the poor and the oppressed in their communities and kind of did away with the 
money lauding of the other church members that they were surrounded by and even denounced those things in certain orders. So, yeah, I think um, mysticism just generally within the Christian tradition specifically is pretty much centered on maybe what you could call like a return to the early church or even um, Christ's life or Jesus' life. Sorry, I'm, I'm not a Christian, so I don't believe he's a Christ, but yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, I mean, in a certain way, it doesn't even matter if you answer the question exactly because uh, <laughs> it could, we're just, I guess, like, you know, we just want to see where it goes with that. That makes sense. Yeah. I think also with mysticism, it kind of offers, like, um, God symbols that don't have authority or power, and they're without the sort of chauvinistic flair that that a lot of God talk has in other Christian traditions. Um, yeah, it's less tied to, well, one one manifestation of that, I think, is it's like less, can be less tied to the nation state, let's say. Yeah, correct. Um, which is something I pick up on in her work for my own work. So I'm pretty, I don't know if anti-authoritarian is the right word, but yeah. Um, yeah, and I think with mysticism, it, it kind of provides a space where people can start to imagine a new kind of future, um, which, you know, the Christian tradition is totally, totally hook, line, and sinker, like uh, apocalyptic in its trajectory of human history. But pardon me, I am drinking LaCroix, so I totally just burped. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> I missed it. It didn't catch it. Oh, well, it'll probably happen again. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just, I think that mysticism provides a space where people can can speak in narrative about things that are happening um, that maybe has some sort of pervasive sexism or even racism and not racism back in the day, but racism now for, for people who still practice it. Um, yeah. I think... Well, I think, like, mysticism, too, like, in addition to, like, being a narrative outlet, like, you know, I think your poetry does this, and at times I think Dorothy's poetry does this, too. Like, it turns to, like, kinds of paradoxes, and, you know, it talks about... You know, the, the first thing I thought about when reading about Dorothy was, you know, this is all very dialectical, and I think... There's a there's a tradition of using um, like paradoxes to reveal these kind of contradictions in that sort of tradition. Yeah, she's definitely playing with a lot of paradoxes, and I think the most interesting one and its implications um, is her sort of Christian atheism, because she's not she's not trying to do something that's sort of transcendent and whatever, which has, in my opinion, pretty terrible implications for human beings she's actually doing like a radical embodied um partnership with jesus as a christological figure and in that way she is trying to i think what she's trying to do from what i how i read her is 
she's trying to partner with specifically South American and um, Black American liberation theologies, and she's trying to create like a a liberation theology that is from the perspective of a white middle class woman from Germany who lived through um, the Shoah and trying to take responsibility for that location um, and maybe give a, I don't know, like a transnational solidarity theology with people like Ernesto or uh, Gustavo Gutierrez or even people in South Africa. Um, yeah, and I, I think too, like when she is talking of poetry and prayer, just going back to that really quickly, like she's talking about a mysticism, <laughs> she's talking about a mysticism that has its eyes open. Um, and sorry, I don't, not to say that, I don't know. Oh, I see. So you're saying she's woke? <laughs> yeah, well, she says, yeah, she's using the language of eyes open, um, which has implications of ableist. Uh, yeah, the, for sure. The Christian, yeah, the Christian tradition loves the sort of sight metaphors and stuff. They totally do. And I actually struggle with that a lot in my work, um, uh, which is is a totally different topic, but I had a really hard time using biblical metaphors that didn't have problematic shit just totally embedded all up, all in it. So um, she doesn't really seem to struggle with that quite the same way people writing now would. But yeah, she uses the symbol of closing the eyes quite a bit. Um, so did you get to read... Uh, any of her poems or were you reading some essays on her? Yeah, I read some of the essays and saw some quotes and I read like one or two poems, but I'm not super familiar with her work. I feel like same with Ernesto Cardinal. I, it's just a little difficult to find some of their work online. I think. Yeah. A lot of Dorothy's stuff is in German, I think. And Ernesto's is available in English, but only if you buy the book. So it's not really like on EPUB or anything like that. Um, I had a hard time finding him too when I found out about him. I was like, how do I even access his poetry? But Dorothy's is pretty interesting because she, um, um, I mean, like she, she wrote this credo as a poem that basically got her called as like a heretic in Germany. Um, by, like, some pretty prominent Protestant leaders. So she never got a job as a uh, teacher or a professor in Germany, and she wasn't really, like, accepted as a theologian in Germany, um, which I think is great, great, personally, but... Yeah, well, a lot of these figures, like Ernesto Cardinal, too, you know, he was... I don't know what the canon law term is but he was like effectively censored by the pope for like 30 years john paul ii in the 80s and then it wasn't until a few years ago like it literally maybe last year that pope francis like um, restored him to being a full priest or whatever and again i'm not <laughs> not a catholic so i don't know what any of the terms are i think you're no it's i don't i'm not a catholic either so i 
understand, but I think you said it. Yeah, I learned that about him too, and it was like, that's pretty badass on a certain level, but um, <laughs> he doesn't really seem to give a fuck. I mean, he was the um, field, like field uh, chaplain for the Sandinistas. So basically he's just concerned with doing spiritual work and he doesn't really seem to care about the Pope, even though he has a bunch of like um, accolades and stuff. So, I mean, that's always confusing when someone is writing radical literature and then receiving certain forms of recognition from like, uh, I don't know, a kind of name them as being co-opted by the establishment. So that's what I think is interesting about liberation theology and um, her heretical mystics specifically, because they are doing all this shit and they're even maybe being killed or ostracized, ostracized from their communities for thinking and believing the things that they do um, and having solidarity with the poor and trying to feed each other and, and clothe each other and all these very simple things. and then the church comes in later and try and like says, "Oh, that they were ours too," and it's kind of like, "Well, they weren't yours when you excommunicated them." <laughs> so I don't know. Yeah, they weren't. They weren't yours when you know he was fighting a, a war of liberation in Nicaragua. Right. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, the whole Sandinista struggle. I'm, I'm still learning about, but when I learned about Reagan's administration and how the CIA backed the Contras and whatnot there. It was just like, fuck, man, the CIA is everywhere. Yeah, it comes up every once in a while still in U.S. politics because there are some older politicians in the U.S. who are, are lefties or, and, you know, it'll come out, like the, the, the Democratic establishment or whatever will try and be like, oh, yeah, these people, they supported a terrorist organization in the 80s, the Sandinistas, and it's like, uh-oh, do you guys, <laughs> do, you, do you know what you're saying right now? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, the propaganda is so strong that people truly believe that kind of stuff too. If they, I mean, I mean, anti-communist propaganda in general, I think, is pretty strong in U.S. politics. Like, for instance, I didn't even start reading anything communist until the past four years. Um, pro partially because I was inculcated in Christian culture, which is its own story, but. Um, well, I, I think it, I think it's kind of the same story because oftentimes in the U.S., anti-communism and Christianity are, are so so tightly linked. Yeah, totally. Um, I'm actually reading like a really interesting book right now by a guy who my my husband is friends with. His name is Tad Delay, and he wrote this book against um, what does the white evangelical want. And I just started it this week. I listened to the podcast that went along with it, but he he basically is trying to say that, you know, the fascism that we're seeing currently um, shouldn't be a surprise, but it's kind of coded with three, three different strains, which is white evangelical Christianity and then American exceptionalism and nationalism and then corporate capitalism. Um, and he kind of draws, like, a lot of conclusions, mostly from like Lacanian psychoanalysis, and he is trying to uncover 
white evangelical desire in the space of the United States and how it has manifested in such a way that especially the apocalypticism has led towards uh, ecocide, which is, I think, just, I think everyone should (laughs) maybe read his book if they have time and money to do so, or at least listen to the podcast, which is free. What what podcast was that? I think it's just called Against, um, which is the name of the book, but his name is Tad, T-A-D, and then delay D E L A Y. And if you just look up his name, it'll pop up. Um, so he's, he's done some good work. And I think that a lot of people like myself who grew up in sort of a cloistered or um, really conservative religious environment who've kind of gotten out have been trying to understand, you know, the faith tradition that we can out of of course but then also like white evangelicalism specifically is maybe the most dangerous um religion so to speak that the world has ever known because it has led towards these sort of theological logics that operate in the political sphere and allow for people to deny climate change and even just like gloat and um revel in other people's oppression and it's really maddening but also just like um you know should lead people to anger has done that for me and then towards okay like what do we what do we do to to maybe (laughs) not allow fascists and white supremacists to kill everybody um i don't know Right. Well, I think like liberation theology in that context, like offers a real alternative um, to that, to that thinking. It does. Um, And I I think that's its its purpose is to sort of turn Christianity, so to speak, on its head and, um, you know, kind of harken back to the kind of God who dies. I mean, this is the kind of God. The, the kind of God that what? Sorry. Just the the, the kind of God that um, can stand with a suffering or oppressed person and join forces against that God, which I don't necessarily think is the actual uh, story of Jesus from my own perspective. But I think that that's the perspective of liberation theology specifically. Is that um, because because their God suffers on the cross and and dies at the hands of the state, then um, you know, so too Christians who are being oppressed can both like sociologically and spiritually oppressed. Um, they can, you know, maybe not take up arms. <laughs> I think a lot of liberation theologians are still pacifists on some level but they can engage uh, uh, the fact that capital commodity the market money all these things are harming them um, and that maybe God their God has a preferential option for the poor like Gutierrez says yeah that make I mean that makes sense and I think something too that's interesting to me about Christianity and liberation theology is sort of like as we were talking about earlier the ways in which um, a lot of these mystical movements prior to Marxism were 
in a lot of ways, proto-Marxist movements, like, you know, a lot of attention by Marxists has been paid to something like uh, Thomas Munzer or something in Germany in the, during the Peasants' yeah. War. Totally. I um, was just reading about him this week a little bit, and the German Peasants' War is pretty interesting. And Robinson actually references him, too, um, I believe, in part of his work. But he, I feel like, I don't know, I didn't get far enough into an anthropology of Marxism to maybe say this for sure, but do you feel like he's saying that um, there are, like, socialisms have always existed, whether or not capitalism as we think of it today exists? That's kind of what I'm picking up from him, and I think that's what a lot of maybe Marxist Christians would even argue. So I guess that's just an open-ended question. Well, I think, like, to... in it's a continuation of like a project in his book, um, uh, black Marxism to kind of argue that there are these other influences on the various radical traditions of the world, other than Marxism. And in a lot of ways, Marx, like the hard line that Marxism draws kind of cuts, um, a lot of radical traditions off from the past because Marx so vehemently distanced himself, Marx and Engels so vehemently distanced themselves from, well, Engels less so, but from, previous social socialist movements in France or the various religious struggles that have the various religious and mystical traditions of Europe and, and Africa. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, that's, I think that's so fascinating. I actually got his book, Black Marxism. I'm going to probably read it here pretty soon, but I think, I think, yeah, I think a lot of, um, at least Marxists that I have interacted with would argue that there are some arguments to be made, at least that even though Marx was trying to get away from theology um, as it was going on in Germany at the time of his writing, he, he still ended up <laughs> kind of defending a form of theology as I think everybody ends up doing. Cause even as he's trying to like extricate, extricate himself from the, theological debates he's just affirming new approaches to um things that people have thought about because of the hebrew bible and the christian new testament so yeah there's a thing that the the jewish uh, i guess philosopher from like the early 20th century franz rosenzweig said that has always stayed with me is um like science is the next philosophy and like i think prior to that you would have said something like philosophy is the next theology and like seeing those kind of changes over time is really i guess interesting to me if that makes sense yeah it's really quite quite interesting i think um i think i'm really interested just like in myself and my own thinking interested in i wonder how much we're ever actually able to escape theological logics whether or not we i don't know i think <laughs> the the argument can be made that any atheist is just affirming theism on some level and so um, um yeah i think maybe that's what i'm trying to say about some some readings of marx that i have i have read but yeah and that, yeah and that's like where the paradoxical sort of whether you call it like the, the 
paradoxes of postmodernism or the paradoxes of mysticism. And this is like, for me, where this kind of re blinks with like poetic ideas, I guess. How so? Because um, oftentimes, you know, whether it was in Dorothy's writing, uh, the, the excerpts I've read from the essays you sent, or in some of Ernesto Cardinal's writing I've seen, you know, talking about sort of the contradictions or the paradoxes of, you know, um, like, you know, the, like, you, like you're saying, atheism can end up reifying uh, theism in that way. That's, those are, I think, ideas that are really lend themselves to exploration and poetry in interesting ways. Yeah, I think... I mean, there's so much here. It's like, honestly, I was trying to just yeah. shove into my head all my thoughts about all these topics that were kind of dancing around. And um, I mean, I just, I feel like there's so much here. and There's a temptation to feel like you have to, at least for me, because I have high um, anxiety, I just like want to understand everything right now, but um, maybe it's impossible. And so... I mean, it is impossible, but yeah, I definitely think that the my temptation is to want to read. Um, you know. Yeah, my temptation too is the same to want to try and read everything. Yeah, I just, I think I, I messaged you that or something, but I just, I, I want to understand. You know, I, I went back and I like read through, um. Marx's critique of Feuerbach just to kind of give myself like a space to interact with these, these things. And um, I, I really think that what he is trying to say is that the critique of heaven that Feuerbach kind of is dancing around um it transforms into the critique of earth and so marx is like yes like god is a projection of our our psychosis or i don't know maybe i shouldn't use medical language um our anxieties um but what does that mean for our material reality and i i think that maybe poetry does something similar where it's kind of like um, trying to uncover what the material reality even is. I mean, I think that the good poetry, at least the poetry that I like, which is what I think good poetry is, should be and can give us sort of an insight into what the, the forms of relation that we're participating in are and what they say about human history historical materialism even you could go so far as to say and so yeah I'm kind of all over the place with this because my brain's just like on fire because I have so many thoughts about this stuff and I spend a lot of time going around and around about all these things yeah well I mean it's the same same for me these are like you know, not necessarily they're like um, topics that just so easily can spin off in uh, so many different directions. And it's like hard to, for me to sometimes to maintain focus like on this 
these kind of questions because it just tends to go off like with the Cedric Robinson, you can just immediately go down some kind of rabbit hole about, you know, some, some mystical movement in like, I don't know, the 15th century Italy and in order to yeah. Yeah, try and understand these questions. But yeah, yeah. it just, uh, oh, no, go ahead. oh, I was just going to ask you um, how you feel poetry maybe has helped you understand and um, the material condition, so to speak, as you see them or, or are able to understand them right now? Yeah, I guess, I mean, it really depends on with a poet, like, because for instance, you have someone like Mayakovsky who was agitating for revolution, and that's a very different thing than a poet who is, I think, very interested in understanding the material conditions. I think as a lot of left poets are right now in the U.S., I think that's I think that's a project of a lot of left poetry right now is to try and understand these the, the material conditions, like um, all the various documentary poetries that, that we see now are, are kind of about that, in, in my opinion. But I don't, like, for me, sometimes it's not specifically just about that. Um, I guess I'm interested, too, in questions like um, how do you... Um, agitate towards a revolution or something like that. So sometimes for me that question ends up being subordinated beneath that but like I think trying to understand the material conditions is like especially as they relate to you know an individual or the sort of uh, communities that they come out of I think that could be a really important function for poetry that I'm really interested in like how how people how the poet or the writers of the poetry would relate to the, their material conditions, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I think I've picked up on that in things like Pink Bucket and whatnot, where I guess a lot of the poets that I follow that are interacting with that have taught me specifically a lot about um, a, a different kind of thing, a Marxist poet that I hadn't really thought about before, which is to actually challenge the, the means of production within poetry land. I, I mean, I've learned so much about that by following people like Isabel and, um, you know, Carl and all the other people. But, yeah, uh, that's really fascinating. So do you feel like, um, for you, like, poetry that, that functions towards revolution, is that just which describes the material reality or that which imagines because I guess for me I feel like once I'm past kind of understanding you know what's going on from my own perspective as much as I'm, I'm able to with the, the influence and observations of others that are quite different from me I, I feel like I what I really want to do is imagine what it could look like to be even past revolution. And that's why Block holds a lot of interest for me. I haven't gotten too deep into him yet, but his utopia, I feel, could be, I don't know. Yeah, that's a really big book. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, that's, I mean, I'm interested, I'm interested in Ernst Block for, I think, the same reasons, effectively. Like, 
like um, the notion of uh, utopian, what was it, utopian, uh, sort of like just um, the everyday sort of utopian moments. I think Dominic Knowles talked about just asking people, like making a poem where he just asked people, you know, what they wanted to see in the future. And that to me, I think is perhaps more interesting than a systematic um, alternative or a systematic sort of sci-fi view of what the future could be, if that makes sense. I said, yeah, totally. That's why sci-fi is really fascinating to me. I love Octavia Butler. She's one of my favorite people. I don't know if you've read her, but she does yeah. that really well, I think. Yeah, I think her Earthseed books are really interesting to think about in the context of this conversation, the way they mix sort of that maybe the utopian impulses of that poetry by um, the main character, um, Lauren Olamina, and also the material circumstances of her present. Yeah, definitely. Um, um, the first work of hers that I interacted with was Lilith's Brood, and I was just totally mind-fucked by it. Yeah, that's such a good book. Yeah. I mean, it took me all two or three days to finish it, and it's like three books, and um, I just couldn't get enough of it. Because, I, I mean, it was the first <clears throat> fiction work that I ever interacted with that talked about different uh, kinds of family structures, like, sort of against hegemonic uh, uh, family structures. So, nuclear families, I guess I should say, but also just the, uh, the <laughs> sort of end times vision and then renewal of the earth, I, I found just fascinating because I love um, ecology and thinking about ways in which the earth could heal so yeah and i mean that's like a running theme too and even the earth seed books it's like i don't know that's something that i think people are increasingly trying to think about through poetry and like octavia butler was doing it in the earth seed books like literally 30 years ago yeah yeah i just i don't know i just i can always read her her work i go back to it quite often i i've only read the earth seed i think once but um yeah she's got a lot of theological ideas in there too which is pretty interesting i feel like she was definitely foreshadowing so to speak but yeah and, and i mean if you listen to her interviews at the time too it was, it's really clear she was aware of climate change even back in the late 80s early 90s so yeah it really is i think foreshadowing a lot of the concerns we have now right yeah i feel like um the climate crisis is sort of imbued maybe poets that you or i or um other people on the left who are doing poetry i i think that the climate change has maybe made us um rightfully so a little bit more just kind of like fuck it our, the world is ending so let's just write what we want and and actually seize the means of production if we can um and organize where we can i, I think that's really um I, I wish you know eco side wasn't the reason that maybe people were talking about these things more but yeah 
Yeah, I saw like a tweet today. I mean, I, I totally get what you're saying. <laughs> like I saw a tweet today by I think Lauren or something like um, every day I think more and more about how the swamp Maoists are right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the more I mean, the more I like I get into thinking about the climate change or whatever, it's like, yeah, we only have like 10 years left. Yeah. Yeah. I was just made a joke in the kitchen. My husband's cooking dinner and he's writing something right now and he was trying to ask me about I don't know how he should end this paper that he's working on if he should be a little bit more provocative because um you know I don't know he was just nervous about it and I was like it, the world is literally ending like you can literally do whatever the fuck you want not whatever the fuck you want but <laughs> just just be provocative. I think people um, need to feel a lot more urgency than they do, and it's worrisome that um, I, I think a lot of people are lulled into complacency, obviously, so that's why we're at where we're at. I think Christianity is pretty culpable in that, at least in the United States. But Yeah, I was just reading um, Akbal Ahmed, um, a book of his called like, Confronting Empire, and he sort of was pointing out that, like, because of, like, the comforts of the U.S., um, a lot of times, like, leftists kind of end up on a leftist to liberal trajectory over the course of their lives. And I feel like because of the crises of the president, that, that kind of has been cut off in a lot of traditionally liberal places, like the poetry world, have now been sort of injected with a sense of urgency that just wasn't there for the past few decades. Yeah, I, yeah, the sense of urgency, I think, is only possible in a, a socialist or Marxist um, or left-leaning framework, because I think the task of liberalism is just to sort of placate the masses so that the bourgeois can do whatever the fuck they want. But yeah, I think that was the interesting thing when I, I discovered all the lefty poets on Twitter them talking about the liberalism embedded in people's work because I was I mean like I said I hadn't really been reading a lot of poetry until the past two years so I was I'm not super familiar with literary land I don't really I entered school as like an English major and two courses and I was like no no this is like not my scene and so um yeah I guess I didn't I wasn't really aware of how I mean a lot of popular well-known poetry is propaganda <laughs> um and I, it makes sense now that i know that but of course i i wasn't really thinking about poetry in that way so i was like even when i read Ilya kaminsky i was kind of like something's really off about this guy like i'm and then i was like oh fuck like forgiveness like forgive us like what the fuck are you talking about that's theological and we don't I don't think that's helpful the way of talking about what's going on. Oh, we just sat back and ate drink tea during the war. Like, fuck you, dude. Sorry, I'm saying I'm dropping a lot of F-bombs. Um, oh, I mean, it, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> right, but I mean, like, that gets us back to what we were first talking about. It's like a lot of the times these kind of more mystical uh, traditions have actual 
action prescribed in them. And so much liberal poetry just is not interested in any kind of action. Yeah. Yeah, I think... I think maybe the interesting thing about liberalism is that it wants to like protect itself. Um, and mysticism definitely is not trying to protect in, in the same way. Um, you know, the individual people, it's, it's trying to protect them against poverty and against exploitation and, um, and liberal anything liberalism is just trying to protect uh, the interests of the middle or upper upper classes and to the death of the working poor and uh, kind of dissuade solidarity movements even with the dead so yeah and there's even a difference too in how like you can often like tell the difference pretty quickly just because Oftentimes, the more liberal stuff tends to end up talking about the individual and anything, even like just mystical things, end up talking more broadly, perhaps. Yeah, they're definitely community based, though I think that the way that church history is written is it kind of likes to laud certain individual figures. Um, so that's why certain names are well known, and there's a lot more well known. Um, like, you'll hear, like, Francis of Assisi more often than you'll hear Claire of Assisi, for instance. Um, and you won't really know who they were interacting with outside of, like, them too when they were working within their community, which I find pretty interesting. But I, I definitely know that their, their mystical telos, so to speak, is... Um, well, well, so, sorry to, sorry to interrupt, but, like, so who was Claire of Assisi then? So, Claire of Assisi she was Francis's. I call it her Francis's bestie, but um, <laughs> she basically is kind of. I I think she does a lot more than Francis, but she was. Um, they're both Italian, and she is founded the Order of the Poor Ladies, and she basically set out some monastic guidelines for um, women in the Franciscan tradition so basically they they just kind of took care of the sick a lot and um, devoted themselves to prayer and she she actually heard Francis preach when she was younger and she asked him to help her live in the manner of, of the gospel um, and she left her whole life and she exchanged like, cause she grew up in kind of a, a wealthier family. So she, she denounced her wealth and um, gave up her, her rich clothes, it said, and all that she had so that she could go and um, minister to the poor. And, and when people say minister to the poor, they basically mean like make food <laughs> for people and, and grow food with people and take care of them when they're sick. Um, and specifically taking care of elderly people and children. So uh, so she was like doing food not bombs for Catholics? <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's really cool. Yeah, there's a lot of really cool um, people like her. Like, 
I don't know. I, I'm really fascinated by um, this this movement from like Christian Christian clergy to kind of be like, oh no, like the women or even maybe I don't know anyone anyone who's not not fitting into the patriarchal norm. I guess I want to say is like taking care of people like what are we gonna do <laughs> it's just like oh no like they're like trying to like <laughs> help their neighbor um and they're so thrown off by it like people who are you know more concerned with like the hierarchy of the church than they are with anything else and and maybe even control politically um i, I just find it like really funny because that's the only part of christianity that I I actually respect at this point, I guess. Um, speaking as a former Christian, so yeah, I mean that's that's what's still attractive to me about it as well. Um, you know there there aren't a lot of there aren't a lot of I guess avenues, especially American culture, where you can kind of find that uh, sort of practice. Oh, I'm sorry, you cut out. Oh, that's I was just saying. What? Yeah, there aren't many avenues in American culture where you can find that sort of uh, practice of feeding the poor. Right. Um, it's, it seems pretty important to feed people. I, I think that's what I, I mean, uh, speaking of radical tradition, just like radical traditions in general, like that's what, like when I was reading about the Black Panthers for the first time, I was really struck with that the... Um, they were feeding kids in the morning. I just, to me, that's sort of, I don't know, taking care of people 101, being a good neighbor 101. But for a lot of people, that was seen as like very radical, of course. And they were trying to say that they were indoctrinating them into communism, which is, of course, its own set of issues. But yeah, I think with, with Christianity and, um, I guess for me, I'll just speak more personally because it, it's helpful. Like the ways that I participated in Christianity early on were um, simultaneously quite problematic because of, you know, colonization, essentially. I think, I, I mean, I definitely participated in a lot of things when I was younger that are acts of terrorism now. I view them as acts of terrorism um, upon communities that are not mine. But at the same time, I was also interacting with the poor and my own economic location um, and social, socioeconomic location. And I just sort of took those things to heart a lot more than anything else in Christian stories and when I interacted with um, Christian churches, uh, I mean, my litmus test for, with them was if they didn't affirm queerness or uh, talk about racial justice or anything like that. I mean, they weren't really worth anyone's time, but unfortunately a lot of Christianity in the U.S. is still... I mean, I guess it always has upheld white supremacy on a, on a certain level. Um, and liberation theology, a specific black liberation theology in the United States has 
been only real resistance to that that I I'm aware of. Um, yeah, like the Quakers were an early resistance to a lot of that. Yeah, they were actually abolitionists. So they, um, I, I think the abolitionist thing kind of started in England, and then they were talking to their uh, friends in the United States and kind of petitioned the Quaker elders, or I don't actually know how they function very well, but they kind of made it like you couldn't be Quaker if you weren't on the abolitionist movement or working towards abolition, which is really quite incredible. Right. And I mean, now you have something like, uh, I don't know, the swords to plowshares type uh, Catholic worker movements that have been going since the, I guess the thirties. I'm blurring on the history. Yeah. I'm not too familiar, I guess, with that. Maybe because you cut off a little bit or I just don't know, but yeah, but I, I was, I don't know, I just think, um, I guess going back to what we were talking about with Marxism and religion and the, I guess, proto-socialist movements, it just seems like these are some other radical traditions that are worth engaging with, especially in America. Yeah, they're definitely worth engaging with, and I think that a lot of Marxists struggle and liberation struggle. I mean, the liberation theology is a Marxist strain of Christianity, I would argue. So it's um, definitely at least a part of a Marxist overall narrative that anyone interacting with Marxism at large should at least hopefully like learn a little bit from. Because I, I think that I think that it's. Um, I don't know, a way for for people of faith in the Christian tradition to participate in larger liberation struggles. And in a lot of cases, it was the instigator of those struggles. So, um, but I, I mean, I, I find it interesting because it's kind of like, why would, uh, why would people in South America need to, to resist their colonization? In the first place um and i don't know i think there's a lot of implications as to why liberation theology exists in the, in the first place and so um i'm sort of <clears throat> wary of, of maybe me saying that it's the only liberation theology movement there's also liberation theology movements in, in other religions um in judaism and you know, I I just think it's a very interesting part of Christian history that maybe not a lot of li people know about. So, yeah, I've heard like um, of it in other religious traditions. Though, like I haven't uh, read anything about it. I'm just like aware that, for instance, like Hamid Babashi wrote a book on Islamic liberation theology, and I think I don't know. Maybe it seems like it's a I guess a global movement that. Um, I think is worth learning from, especially in the United States, where uh, we don't really necessarily have some of that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I also have found in like some Marxist spaces that, not all, definitely not all, but that 
there's sort of an aversion to any sort of spirituality or faith tradition um, because a lot of people, I mean, I, I mean, rightfully so, um, might see <clears throat> historical materialism as necessi necessitating a type of atheism. Um, but I, I think that, you know, those people are missing out on a different way of interacting with transnational solidarity struggles. Yeah, and I also think there's, um, I guess, a different praxis you could say about, um, I don't know, I think, uh, like when I was reading about Ernesto Cardinal, he, he was part of a group of people that put together, like, um, I forget what it was called, like a Nicaraguan language, a Spanish language Nicaraguan mass that incorporated like regional folk music into it. And yeah, yeah and like that kind of praxis is often really can be absent from, I think, leftist movements here. Yeah, I, um, Dorothy did something similar. They're called Even Songs in Germany. Um, and they were essentially just street gatherings of like protest and prayer, not necessarily protest. Um, I mean, sometimes there were protests against specific things, but mostly they were just sort of like loose, I guess you could call them church services, but I don't think that they call themselves that um, where they gathered to, to, to build both rapport and like, um, you could say strength for engaging in struggle and I think that that's kind of what I'm interested in in poetry where I, I want to be emboldened by poetry to like to move my body in certain ways that um, are, are participating in struggle movements so yeah I think that um, Ernesto did that and he he also just like led a group of people on an island. I don't know where it is, but um, they did a lot of like recouping for the Sandinista struggle. So I, I think that there's something to be said for like contemplation and rest in, in solidarity movements and, and struggle and revolution specifically, like especially armed combat, like, um, I think moving forward, just speaking to our own time, like we have to be able to create spaces where we're taking care of one another so we can rest and like not just get burnt out on wanting to, I don't know, overthrow the state. So, <laughs> well, I guess like who are some poets that? would move you you would say like are good at like moving you towards action and who are some i guess more of the contemplative ones that speak to that uh restorative aspect um i mean i think audra lord has really challenged uh, you know for me specifically my internalized white supremacy which i think that a lot of people um maybe shy away from talking about but I've, that's been the most significant person for me and then additionally, Adrian Rich and their relationship to me is um, a model by which um, you can sort of learn to talk about, about the 
expectation of people that are different than you, um, not just different than you, but are oppressed in possibly more horrendous ways. So, I, I mean, for me, that that has been reading reading Adrian and Audra together have been the most impactful, I think. Um, yeah, I'd say those are two poets I, I really look to as, as well. And I guess, too, I try and, like, one of the exciting things for me, especially about liberation theology, is um, I try and also, like, I want to have a more internationalist outlook and someone like Ernesto Cardinal and the Sandinista movement, like, those are things that I think um, can, like, uh, broaden that sort of vision, like, can broaden things, because I think, I guess I, I don't want to just be one of those U.S. Marxists that doesn't know anything about the rest of the world. Yeah, definitely. I'm working on that as well. Um, the Sandinistas has really caught my eye, but then I think there's also some movements in South Africa that I'll probably read a lot more about here pretty soon. Um, but that's kind of Angela Davis's whole thing is she really wants people to have like a like she calls it like a transnational solidarity movement. And I kind of picked up on that term because I found it really useful and like helpful for my own um, scope. And I, I think that, yeah, it's easy to get kind of tunnel visioned when it feels like the problems at home are really big. But I, I think that the biggest point, at least for me at this moment in my own development is at least be aware of other people's work. And then once um, <clears throat> my mental health is a, a better point, then I, I'm planning on doing some more organizing. And how, how do you partner with organizations that are doing more, not globalized work, but just work that is just concerned with, you know, home, um, but also isn't trying to import certain cultural expectations onto to other cultures as to what liberation might look like. I think that that's a big problem on the left. Um, and ultimately, I think that communities should be able to decide for themselves on some level, like, what their liberation can look like and should look like based on their needs. Um, but, I mean, <laughs> ecocide, the ecocide that's impending is kind of throwing a new spin on that thought. So maybe I'll have to rethink that. Yeah. Well, I mean, that also gets back to like, um, like uh, what I was saying, what we were saying earlier about uh, like trying to like let people maybe speak for themselves about what kind of futures they want. And I think like poetry is a really good way to think about that because you don't have to try and make narrative sense or have that kind of internal consistency that other forms demand. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I think that, I think that, I think that I just, I don't know. I love the poetry that excites my imagination about how the world could be different and not in like a, a messianic way, but just like a, well, like, well, sorry, oh, shit. what are, what are some poems that do that for you? You think, um, oh, you know, you asked me. And I'm like totally <laughs> drawing a blank. <laughs> I feel like that that happens. Yeah, that, that's uh, like a hard question to think of on the spot. I think. Yeah, I mean, well, I'm looking at my bookshelf now. Um, <laughs> oh, I was just doing that too. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Um, oh, I feel like the most recent one. Hold on. Oh, I don't have the book right now. Um, I don't know if I can find it online, but Cheryl Clark, she is like a favorite of mine. Let's see if I can even find it. There's a poem of hers that recently really, really struck me. Oh, you know what? No, let me talk about Nikki really quick. I don't know how to say her last name. Nikki Walsh. Mm -hmm. I don't want to butcher it. I think it's Walshlager. Walshlager? Okay. Um, I just read her book. I can't remember which one it is. Uh, houses or Crawl Space. Crawl Space. And the last poem in there. It's not necessarily like imagining a new future, but it also kind of is, and it, it locates itself in like a restaurant or like around food, which I find really interesting as a bartender because a lot of my, um, I guess, engagement with uh, uh, theory comes from like literally bartending. So, or like comes out of bartending, I guess I should say. And so I, I found it like really fascinating. I don't think I have a copy of it here in front of me but um it really excited my imagination and like my my whole self because i was just like fuck like someone's writing about a restaurant and a poem it feels really radical to me um as someone who has been exploited by the restaurant industry yeah and i think like um a lot of the times like the there's sort of the overarching sort of, oh, we're just going to nationalize, I don't know, the healthcare industry and all the internet companies or something. But like, there's never that sort of reckoning with, I guess, the, well, maybe not never, but certainly it seems rare to have the reckoning with like the everyday experience for the worker, what that might mean, if that makes sense. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Um, I feel like, so my husband, likes to say this quote i don't know if it's from someone or not but he says like the people know marx but they don't know they know marx and i i didn't really know marx until i was talking to him about my experience at work like three or four years ago um and he was like yeah that's surplus value and i was like what and so that's when i started reading marx more in depth um because i mean like theft happens, wage theft happens all over the place in restaurants. And yeah, I mean, it's pretty fascinating when you think about like how a lot of writing arises out of people's like just destitution or their, not just like their oppression, but like their fatigue and their grief and their, um, you know, trauma. It's just, I mean, it's kind of fucked up. And then it's also kind of like, oh, cool. Like, we're not alone and we can <laughs> read about each other's trauma and maybe imagine why it is and how it could be different. Pretty cool. Uh, so, like, what would, like, a post-revolutionary or a communist sort of bartending look like, do you think, for you? Oh, God. Oh, a huge part of me just wants to, like, abolish rest restaurants like I yeah just think yeah that, that was one of so my... fucked up oh no go on um that's just really what i want at this point and i think that i know a couple people that also want that 
Um, maybe Brendan being one of them. I haven't actually asked him about that, but um, um, yeah, I just honestly, some of the most fucked up shit has happened to me in restaurants, even more than in churches, which I feel like is saying a lot. And so <laughs> I just really want them to be abolished because I mean, they, I haven't researched too much into like the historical development of the restaurants as of yet, but I feel like it just arises out of like oh we can't keep you as a servant anymore so like now you can like go sell your labor at this place that someone else owns <laughs> I, maybe I'm totally talking out of my ass so I just feel like there's no like reconciling it like we should just invite each other over to our homes if we want to eat out I don't know yeah that's definitely one option like when, when I was asking it I was like yeah this could totally just be an, an, abol an a we abolish restaurants answer <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, the, especially here, it's just, like, so massive, like, the tentacles of how the restaurant and food industry works and the beverage industry, too, like, the way that, I mean, if you think of everything from, um, you know, the production of the plant that goes into distilling the spirit or something, and then the distillers, and then um, the truck drivers, and, and then all the people that prepare you know a batch cocktail or something for a service um and then and then the guest that comes in and pays like 12 bucks or something like that and then maybe stiffs you on a tip it's just i mean the whole thing is pretty fucked but basically like yeah i have so many thoughts about restaurants it's actually without giving away too much the um location of my next poetry chat book um that i kind of have some ideas about should be fun but oh that's really exciting yeah yeah i kind of was like okay i did the liberation theology thing like now i want to just talk about you know how <coughs> workers are you know the best and then also simultaneously just like so exploited and taken advantage of by ownership um i was kind of like a mindfuck when I found Brendan's account because he's not only like a restaurant worker and a leftist but a poet and I was like oh my god there's someone else in the world that is that also it's amazing and there's a couple other people on there on Twitter that are like that as well yeah there's definitely multiple people like that and I think like in the poetry world that kind of stuff often doesn't get talked about no it doesn't I think it's interesting because I think that even a lot of leftists are kind of, well, maybe not all leftists. I, I think if you're going to be on the left, you got to reconcile with like where your fucking food comes from <laughs> or like where you're, I don't know, just who, who is making it for you. Like every time I go to the grocery store, I think one, there's just so many choices that it's almost debilitating like it's like an act of anxiety just like walking in the door because i'm like why can't there just be like one kind of i don't know hummus or whatever it is um <laughs> and then you have to like weigh the value of each of the items to see if it's actually like worth based on the ingredient list and how organic it is or something not f like i don't buy all organic stuff but i think that that's just the the way it's sort of categorized and then sold to the um, 
United States restaurant goer is just quite amazing. But yeah, I mean, with like restaurants specifically, there's so much stuff that goes into the way it operates. Like I have a lot of critiques of kitchens as being really, you know, patriarchal and militaristic, um, which I think a lot of restaurant workers would agree with. But the interaction between the the guest and the employee, um, I think is probably one of the worst forms of exploitation because it makes everyone in the restaurant your boss because your whole paycheck rests on like how nice you are to somebody or whether or not you let them, you know, harass you. So, and the owner will turn a blind eye. I mean, I could talk about that all day, but. Yeah, no, I mean, that's definitely like the way it works, like, especially in restaurants for like the, the patriarchal aspects of it are just so like what you said earlier about, I guess, um, the restaurant being worse than the church for you. Like, uh, I can sort of imagine it because of how patriarchal the restaurant can be, especially either in the kitchen or with customers. It's just, it's just in every aspect, it seems to, to try and enable abuse. Yeah, it definitely does enable abuse. And, um, I mean, don't get me wrong, the church has a lot of its own patriarchal aspects as well, which I'm sure everyone listening to this is pretty aware of, but I just, uh, I don't know. I think, I think that, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, like, well, what would, like, a leftist sort of kitchen look like for you, I guess, if that makes sense? Um, for a while, I, I wanted to start my own restaurant, actually. So I was thinking about kind of forms of worker ownership, of course, and, um, what it would look like for everyone to share the labor and for us to be closed on certain days so people wouldn't have to fight over who gets what day off or, um, you know, not letting the consumer dictate how a business is done. But I think it's pretty hard to even imagine that because my whole consciousness around restaurants has been just formed by, like, the way that capitalism has just totally... Um, just, I don't know. I don't even know what to say. Capitalism is just it, you know, like the whole, the whole premise of a restaurant is so that you can make money off of cheap labor and decent or pretty good products that are also made off of cheap labor. And then some guy who's never worked in a dish pit in his life is like making like, I don't know, millions of dollars. Um, it's hard for me to like imagine a restaurant that could exist and exist well outside of that that paradigm because even like some feminine quote feminist restaurants that i i know of are like um not male oriented bars that are maybe more like aware of like how sexual harassment happens in the restaurant and like wants people to own their labor a little bit more, even they, they like, there's no perfect way to like own your labor that I can see happening at least right now. Um, New Belgium brewing. Oh, I probably shouldn't drop names, but, but who the fuck cares? New Belgium brewing is probably like the only brewery that I'm aware of that has any form of worker ownership. <clears throat> um, and even, 
<laughs> you have to like earn it after a certain amount of time and it's just like a share or something. So, so. yeah, I guess, uh, as I said, I quoted a tweet earlier, uh, I guess the swamp now is to have a point. Oh yeah. You said that earlier. I'm gonna look yeah. It, it sort of circles back now. like that. No, it's not my tweet. It was, it was like Lauren's tweet. Oh, I was just going to ask like, um, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about? No, I, I feel like maybe we or I were was kind of all over the place, but um, thanks for talking with me. I really appreciate it. Oh, no, it was real fun. We'll have to maybe do another one or two, maybe about a specific book, like of Ernesto Cardinal's or something, and maybe one about your book when it comes out. Yeah, whenever it comes out. Um, that would be really fun. Yeah, yeah, because I want to talk, I guess, more specifically about it, because I did, I did read it and enjoy it, but um, I try not to talk about it too much because it hasn't hasn't come out yet oh yeah i mean we could talk about it i don't i'm not really like protective of no i just thought it'd be better for um for people to if they could actually get it when we talked about it totally yeah that book is kind of weird it's kind of interesting for me to talk about um i guess we'll talk again soon and next time it won't take me quite so long to get on the chat